turn and hear the voice of God, there's an active response, an active thing. All right, I'm going to try this this week. I'm going to begin to step into this. I'm going to go alongside this person. I'm starting to disciple a few folks like one-on-one for the first time and forever. It's fascinating. We like go places and we try stuff and then we talk about it in a larger group. And those are the places where so often, again, these like light bulb moments come on. Oh, man. And then out of that, God often, almost always speaks. Okay, so what next? So what is God showing us? What's the next step? And it's not always like success. A lot of times it's like, wow, I failed at that completely. Yeah, I am clearly the most egomaniacal person on the face of the earth. Like, earth. like all right, all right. So what's the next step? What is God calling you to now? This it, it, happening in community is something that I think uh, helps seal this process of becoming a learner. Our primary call is to transformative learning. And so hearing God's voice, responding, responding actively, and then debriefing and interpreting with others and with leaders in our community uh, is something that uh, I think moves us into a place where we can uh, sort through this age of information that is just chaotic. We can, we can start to sift through and start to properly place the kind of information that we should have about who Jesus is. And doing this on a regular cycle within community is absolutely necessary. So I want to give an example. I know you said I had three points. The second point's a lot shorter. If that's what, it, it just in our community, in looking at scripture, how we think this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is kind of the, the pattern that is healthy for us as a community. This is our home group pattern, which I'll, I'll kind of go back to at the very end here. Then what's an example? In light of this series that we've been going through, this small as we are, the talking about the least of these, the smallest, the everyday acts of life, what it means to follow Jesus there, I wanted to kind of pull us into this cycle in a way that I can see us learning as a community. So there was one uh, particular subject matter that I, there was no possible way uh, with any integrity I could leave this series and not talk about in light of small as we are, and that would be children. That would be kids. Matthew 18. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples come to Jesus. They've been learning from him about what the way of Jesus looks like. And uh, they asked, hey, Jesus, who is the best? And this is the question, right? This is like the question underneath the question. Underneath all your false humility, this is a who's rocking. Like who's killing it? Who's really doing a good job? Whether it's at church, whether it's at work, whether it, you know, whatever your like status uh, that you feel the need to, to kind of elevate, whatever ladder you feel internally f- uh, called to, uh, to climb. Right, this is the question. Who is the greatest? Who is the best in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the best in the place where, for the disciples are asking, where heaven and earth collide, where, where everything is as it should be, who is going to be the best? And we know just from looking at Jesus that it's not going to be about the survival of the fittest. It won't be the result of some long evolutionary process in which the strongest, fastest, and loudest, and angriest people get to be the, the, the front of everyone else. When the disciples ask who is the greatest in the heavenly rule that was to come, we are probably right to suspect that it was things like this that they had in mind. Things like what he's about to invite them into, which is, it's like one of these, Jesus says. He says, it's like one of these kids. Do you want to know what the kingdom of God like is like? 
it's like one of these children and he invites one of these children to kind of take center stage in this story. This is what it's like to walk the way of Jesus. So before I go any further, um, children, let me talk about children for a second. Uh, I'd like to show you a quick picture. You got that? Yeah, it's really hard to see. It looks pretty frightening, right? Yeah, don't say anything bad under your breath right now. This is my daughter. Yeah, this is Harper, and I'm sorry it's so hard to see, but uh, this is, we have a, um, a monitor. Uh, how many parents have the, the uh, video monitor? Yeah. So the video monitor is, um, you know, it's like black ops, right? <laughs> you know, so you can see. And, uh, and every once in a while, I will just roll over. I don't know what it is. And I, it, this is when she was really little. And I will look at the monitor. Even though I don't, like, see the light flashing or hear any crying, I'll just, like, like to look. And it's just a little gadget in me. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I can still see Harper. So I click it on. And every once in a while... There's no, and it, it, the first time it happened, it legitimately scared me, which is why her eyes right now are blown out of proportion. She, she's just standing there at the edge of the crib. It's like three in the morning. Not crying. Crying would make the whole situation better. Anything, like gaga would make the whole situation, like. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, oh, Harper, I love you. Okay. <laughs> and I, well, the second time it happened, I felt compelled to go downstairs and just to put her down. Totally for me. Like, which is anyone who knows as a parent is a major risk to, like, show your face in the middle of the night. It means could be the end of the night. Um, and I, I show this. Oh, yeah, so the end of the story is simply... Uh, Jason, uh, the guy who's up here who leads uh, music often, I was talking to Jason about the, how this happens, and he was like, dude, you got to send me a picture next time it happens. So next time it happens, I send him a picture, and he sends back to myself and my wife a picture of this with her eyes blown out, like, you know, poltergeist style or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> you can take that off the screen now. <laughs> People are like, I'm leaving. Let's have a safe place for a minute, especially for you parents. This image at 3 o'clock in the morning is a nuisance. Amen. It stinks. Amen. It's awful. Amen. Right? Let's not pretend that your child waking up over and over and over in the middle of the night, you with just sandbags under, you can't, it's basically half your face is just a bag at that point. This is awful. They are hard. And part of the reason they're hard is they inconvenience us. They are a nuisance. And they're a nuisance, why though? Because they matter. They disturb our organized adult world because they are real people. If they were toys or machines, we could put them in a cupboard and be done. They are not that. Some parents are like, oh, I never thought of that, the cupboard. <laughs> no, we have parenting classes after. They have their own dignity, their own questions, their own future, their own unique identity. Kids in the ancient world, and this is really important around the time of Jesus, uh, in so many societies, this wasn't just in this particular area of the world, we have so much documentation um, of how forgotten children were. Unless you have a particular family and you are a male, things were, you were in trouble. 
Children were frequently seen as only half human until they reached puberty, perhaps for the worrying reason that until they were available as sexual partners, adults wouldn't want to know about them. Girls in particular suffered. Uh, One scholar says this, often newborn girls were simply thrown away, left to starve or be eaten by predators or sold for prostitution at an early age because the family didn't want another expensive daughter to bring up. It's significant, and this is something N.T. Wright points out, it's significant that in some languages, including the Greek, in which the New Testament, the Bible that we are reading is written, the words for child are mostly neither masculine nor feminine, but neuter. They were neutral. The child wasn't a he, and it wasn't a she. It was simply an it. There's all sorts of references in Ephesians to like this hill, where they would, ch- children were just disregarded. And we look around, and the saddest sights around the world, right, are the ones where we see a child, you know, dying, and, and glimpses where we get children in need. Autonomous children with dignity, children who have a life and, and, and personality of their own are inconvenience, a nuisance, and it oftentimes throughout culture and even in today's world in certain parts of the world are treated as less than. And Jesus says in Matthew 18, it's, you want to know what the kingdom is like? Look at one of these insignificant children. Verse 2, he called the little child to him and placed the child among them. He said, truly I tell you, whenever Jesus says that, pay attention. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Can you see in light of just the tiny bit of context I gave you how this would have been strange? Can you see how strange this is now? Jesus was wanting to get into the disciples' mind that the weakest, the most vulnerable, the least significant human being you can think of is the clearest possible signpost to what the kingdom of God will be like. This is, remember, in response to who's the greatest. Stop trying to build your thing. Jesus calls out a little child likely shy and vulnerable and unsure, but trusting with clear eyes, ready to listen, to love and be loved, to learn and to grow. And this is what true greatness is like, Jesus says. Go and learn about it. That's what he says. Like, go and learn about it. This is what it's like. Imitate this. Do this and turn away from anything else. This is what an invitation looks like to the life of God. And for a group of young men who were gathered around him, right? the first week we talked about Peter, people who were earnest, ready to go, ready to fight, ready to charge in. This group of people, to hear something like this, Do you want to know what the kingdom is going to look like, what the way of Jesus is going to be look like? You will learn not just something, but everything when you look at a child. This is what counts because pride and arrogance are the things which more than anything else distort and ultimately destroy who we are. He says, be humble like one of these kids. This is the posture you're to have. 
And, and he drives this home, and I wish I could spend more time talking about this, but this is uh, actually really fascinating. And later on, he says, verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. He's using hyperbole, but he's pretty fired up about this. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now wait. Anyone, when it comes to angel passages, you just run, you keep going. Angels, like, that's strange. Like as 21st century urbanites talking about angels can be a little bit strange. Right? I, I get a little weirded out. I'm not going about to give you my theology of angels right now. But I want to focus on why this is so important to the story. This little detail, it's like, hey, he, he says, don't despise one of these little ones. Um, uh, for I tell you that their angels, their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. So in Isaiah, the prophet gets an image of angels at the throne room of God. And they have all these wings. So two wings, which are helping them fly solid. You need usually two. One wing usually leads to disaster. Two wings. They have two wings covering their feet, which is going to take way too long and there's way too much speculation about what the two wings covering their feet is about. Stay with me. And then there are two wings that are covering their eyes. Now in ancient Jewish history, and in fact really throughout all sorts of folklore throughout the centuries, you can't see God. And the Judeo-Christian tradition, especially early, early um, writings, there was such a sense of awe. In fact, that's why Jesus' message was so revolutionary. It's not that we didn't have intimate pictures in the Old Testament about how we can relate to God in like a friend kind of way, but he really kind of like helps us see this much more. But there was, uh, for us, we tend to like want to lean on Jesus as like our boyfriend or girlfriend. Like he's just our bud. Like he's our bro. He's with us and all things. He's like here, he's caring for us, like dad over the bed. All that so beautiful and, well, not the girlfriend and boyfriend part, but the rest of it, so true. But what we often lose is why buildings like this are created, like the grandeur and awe of God. And so for the first, for some of these uh, first disciples, and, and for especially in the Old Testament and the tradition they're a part of, it was uh, understood that you do not and cannot look into the face of God. You would die. God in his overwhelming goodness, beauty, like majesty, like no, and you would kind of fall back and, oh my gosh, God. So the angels always, in almost every picture that we see, the angels would have their, their wings up and they would cover the eyes. And in covering the eyes, they were shielding themselves from, from God. They were shielding themselves like, we can be around you, we can like take the commands, we worship you. But like two of their six wings were like this. Anyone ever seen a child, right, who's kind of in danger or in trouble and they go like this? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe some of you still do that. It's the stupidest thing in the entire world. Right? Like they can still see you. <laughs> you're like, no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> like you're This, just because you can't see me all of a sudden. So this image, Jesus evokes here. And he says in some way, in some mysterious, like in the heavens way that we don't understand, like the angels somehow associated with the littlest of children... They are the only ones who can look on God. This is actually really profound because it's just Jesus one more time ramming home 
The fact that it's, do you want to know what it means to be the church, to interact in the kingdom of God, how we relate to one another, how you relate to God, all of this comes back to look at one of these vulnerable little ones, these insignificant kids. Look on them. I don't care if you're scared of having kids, if you're like decades away from having kids, or if you have long past uh, had a house full of them. Continue to look here you will learn something about who I am and what it means to relate. One translation says the last thing he wants is for a single one of these little ones to be lost. The the, the smallest among us. Jesus wants to drive home the least among you, the weak, the vulnerable children, the cripples, the chronically sick, the elderly, the infirm, the refugees, anyone who is on like the human scrap heap that our world throws like the dirty beggar who you avoided on the way here, the homeless person who asked you for change and you wanted to hide your eyes as you walked by. It's ironic. That's usually what we do. We want to screen them out. And so we hide our eyes actually from other people. And God is like, these are the people, like they're angels, like whatever's going on there, like they're the ones, they're angels, they're the ones who, who can actually see me. They're the ones who don't have to. They're the ones who get it in some mysterious way. So, In light of this, Jesus taught his disciples what it means to be engaged in the kingdom of God. He's teaching them what it is to learn. He's teaching them what it is to actually walk in this rhythm. He's he's inviting them now to obey. Now, as we say often, the word of God was not just for them, it's for us. We believe the scriptures are living and active. We believe there's something mysterious about this collection of stories and poems and, and, and rhymes and accounts. There's something inspired about them. There's authority and weight to it that speaks to us now. So let's pretend for a second all the context that I just gave about what it means to actually obey the, 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 the command, learn what this is like, turn and learn what it is to be like a child. Turn what it is to honor the least of these among them, right? Because this wasn't just about learning. This was about actually honoring those and caring for those who were the weakest and weakest among you. So how do we as a church respond? So I want to tell a story um, before we kind of land this plane. I know I've been talking for a little bit, but I wanted to set all that up. The disciple, how we learn and, and our lesson for today, you could say, of, of making sure that we are people attentive to the weakest and smallest, not just in our church, but in the world around us, and learning from them. Um, there's a couple, a family in our church, who ha- has an op- had an opportunity. Um, it's interesting to say an opportunity. They had something, a crisis happen to them, where the least of these was presented. And in light of everything that I've just said, which I know is ingrained in their consciousness, They have responded to the command of Jesus to turn and be like one of these. To not let anyone, it says in that passage, don't don't cause one of these little ones to stumble. That the care and the posture we're to have over these little ones. Um, They had an opportunity to do this. And so if this is in our cycle, I've just given you the hear the word. Uh, This is the the story of what obedience of learning with their feet look like. Um, So you can turn your eyes to the screen. We got pregnant last summer, mm-hmm. and actually for a while, I was dead set on having no ultrasounds, which is a little ironic yeah. at this point. We did not have the initial like 12-week ultrasound That's true. that most people get. I did not want that. 
Um, we did go in for the 20 week, kind of the halfway ultrasound to find out the gender and make sure that nothing was wrong. And um, that's when we found out that Paige had hydrocephalus. That's all we found out at that point. And I yeah. don't really remember a lot about what we talked about, but we went home with the Wikipedia printout of what hydrocephalus is. And we're just like in the car. Um, yeah. And then when we put Gideon down and we sort of looked it up, we were, um, that was like the worst. Super devastating. Yeah, that was probably yeah. like the worst night. Yeah. So the doctor that we had, he was um, just not the most like optimistic guy. The way he framed it up was like, was like this is this is like you know a death sentence pretty much, you know. Yeah. Well, so we went back that week, and he told. I mean, he basically told us we were looking at um, like if she were to live, we weren't sure if we, she would live. If she would live, she would be sort of vegetable status, like no real personality. Mm-hmm. Um, posture and that we should like seriously consider terminating yeah it's more about like you can't like your life could potentially revolve around this person 24 7 and that's I mean that's a real risk I guess with um, yeah and I would say like I would say that is the scariest part even still it's the scariest part I mean that's like that's that's freaky and uncomfortable, you know. But like, still, I mean, you weigh that to like not being alive at all. It's like obviously, you know, we'd rather have her live her life to like, you know, have the, you know, as much happiness as she can possibly have. Yeah, it was it was a scary, a scary procedure. But um, when she came out and she was just like screaming at the top of her lungs, it was like. It was like the sweetest sound in the world. Finally at two months, her head size was measuring above the curve. Um, she was still doing really well. They can have symptoms um, of the pressure building up and she wasn't having any symptoms, but since she sort of declared her need for intervention with her head size, he decided to schedule it Um, So she had that two months old. She had the procedure we were planning on having and we went home from brain surgery the next day. She's doing really well right now. She's five months old and she's really fat Mm -hmm. and she's happy and she does everything she's supposed to be doing at five months. I mean something that uh, you learn when you have kids in general is just like enjoy the moment, you know, like, because it goes by so fast, even, you know, like, within the span of a month, they can go through, like, three different super cute phases that you're never going to see again, mm-hmm. and, like, that's, like, even more applicable to, like, having a kid that could, you know, their problems could erupt at any point, you know, like, we just need to enjoy every peaceful, happy, silly, sad, whatever moment that we have, you know? Yeah. I learned just the high level of peace that God can give us, like, when we're faced with a situation like this, you know? Because um, it was, as soon as that set in, it, it all just, it was like, 
alright, whatever happens, happens. That's the same thing, just we were so cared for um, by just comfort given to us, like definitely by God, um, because I'm not a comforted person. It can be very high strung. Um, I mean, we had our friends in, on the West Coast praying. We had so many people here. Um, I heard of a nun in Kentucky that prayed for Paige. Every, I mean, everything from, I had a friend that just always texted me the best Bible verses for just how I was feeling. I think, I, I thank God like all the time just for like landing in Providence and having the body at Sanctuary. Like, I mean, it's like instant friendships and stuff as soon as we got here and mm-hmm. that was huge. Yeah. Super huge. Couldn't have, like we couldn't have done it without everybody. This is a verse that gave me a lot of peace when we were pregnant, especially just no one even being able to predict her outcome. Uh, it's from Psalm 139. It's, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to me. Amen. I want to welcome up the Finnerties. Can you guys give a round of applause for the Finnerties? If we were going to finish this cycle this morning, because the Finnerty's story of obedience to caring for the least of these, to all the times that doctors told them um, this wasn't worth it, this wasn't worth it, this isn't worth it, this isn't worth it, up until the very end, for their stepping into obedience, then for us, right? This isn't just about them. What, how will we learn? Like, what will we learn from this as a community? What is it that as a church, small as we are, to look on the even smallest among us, the children in our midst, the children who yell in the middle of sermons, the children at the home groups that we go to, the kids that we see, the least of these in terms of society that we see around us, are we learning from them? How are we going to respond as a community? Something that will shape the culture of sanctuary so that we can shape the culture of our city, the culture of our heart being shaped by the commands of Jesus and being able to then reflect on the obedience of John and Susie. What's up, Gideon? What's up, bro? Um, So today, one way that we can respond uh, is going to be to dedicate them to bless and dedicate Paige, um, not just to God. God, as Susie read in Psalm 139, has known her and is with her. Um, But uh, in a way, kind of bless her to us, to commission her in a sort of way, to to welcome her in a formal, traditional sense into the family. So let's walk through this together. Will you, as parents, by God's help, dedicate yourselves to the Christian nurture of your child and bring Paige up in the worship and teaching of the church 
that she may come to know Christ as Savior, be baptized, and follow him as Lord. If you do say, we will. Will you, as members of this congregation, dedicate yourself to be faithful to your calling as members of the body of Christ so that this child and all other children among you may grow up in the knowledge and love of Christ our Savior? If so, say, we will. Can I grab her? This is my favorite part. I'd like to point out that Paige has jeggings on today. <laughs> Almost there, bud. Paige, because Jesus said, let the children come to me. For to such belongs to the kingdom of God, we present you to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Um, I, I, mean, I thank you, God, for uh, the opportunity to, uh, to meet this um, girl. I thank you, God, for the opportunity um, to hold her when we didn't think that we would have an opportunity to hold her. And I thank you, Lord, that you go with her. And I thank you for the things said and unsaid of the ways that you have taught the Finnerties about who you are through her life, about the way that Paige, small as she is, has blessed and carried your love and power in such strange and miraculous ways, ways that no one else could teach them or teach us. And so, Paige, we bless you this morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Would you please, for both Paige and Gideon here, would you guys give a round of applause?